السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته. الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين. اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر أمين يا رب العالمين. أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها النبي لما تحرم ما أحب الله لك تبتغي مرضات أزواجك والله غفور رحيم قد فرض الله لكم تحلة أيمانكم والله مولاكم وهو العليم الحكيم رب الشح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحد العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي واللهم ثبتنا عند الموت بلا إله إلا الله اللهم اجعلنا من الذين آمنوا وعملوا صالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر أمين يا رب العالمين um, I'd first like to express my gratitude to this community for their hospitality and to all of you that came uh, out of your homes and made all this effort to be here and uh, be in this gathering. I, I ask Allah to protect all of you and that, that Allah protects all of your families and that you make it home safely and remain safe and healthy. I also wanted to express what I felt when, I, when we drove in here. Um, it was just really beautiful to see the kids playing outside and the activity in this community. And it just made me make dua for you guys that Allah keeps this community growing and it protects it from the fitan that come, the trials that come from the outside and the trials that come from the inside. And Allah keeps your hearts together. It doesn't allow egos to flare. It doesn't allow for disunity and infighting and suspicion to take hold. And he protects you from all of these things like Yaqub alayhi salam feared what happened between his sons so this is, this is the kind of thing that can even happen between brothers. So it's easily going to happen between a community. And so we have to ask Allah to protect us from that. And I pray that Allah protects and continues to protect all of you. Um, the surah, I was asked to you know, so make a selection of a surah that I think would be a good topic to share with you. Uh, and I have about 40, 45 minutes to share some thoughts with you. And I, I deliberately chose Surah Al-Tahreem. Uh, this is the 66th surah of the Qur'an. It's got many, many lessons. A few years ago, I did a, a, a lecture series on this surah. Um, lesson series, I decided to just cover the entire surah in a whole day. It's not very long. It's 12 ayat. But it took me about 12 hours to cover the topic. So, but obviously, I won't be putting you through that so you can relax. But what I'm going to do is take some of those lessons that I think are really valuable and are not often talked about, uh, that, that I think all of us need a reminder of, I myself need a reminder of. So here goes. This is, this is one of the surahs that Allah gave to the Prophet ﷺ when he was in Medina. And the life of the Prophet ﷺ is very different in Medina than it is in Mecca. Uh, and so I'm going to highlight some things that we have to keep in mind when we read a surah like this one. What is going on with the Prophet of Allah ﷺ? Because Allah tells us, In Surah Al-Isra, Allah says that Allah sent the Qur'an, He broke it apart, so He didn't send the whole thing down at once, right? He sent it down little by little on just the right occasion. So a situation was developing and it reached a pretty intense climax and human, human beings don't know what to do. Now Allah will reveal ayat to solve the issue or to, to, to give release from him so that things can be resolved. That's ala muqthin wa So with that in mind, it's kind of important to know what's going on in the Prophet's life at the time. What's going on in Medina at the time when this surah is coming down. And I'm going to come at that from a, of a very particular perspective. 
So before I go to the Prophet's life, I'm just going to speak to the men here for a moment. All due respect to, to my, my, my daughters, my sisters, my mothers that are here in the audience. There, there's quite a bit about you coming in the surah, so bear with me. You see, you have a lot of things to juggle, my friend. You have a family to take care of. Those of you that are married and heads of households, you have a family to take care of. You have your wife to take care of. You have your children to take care of. Depending on what age your children are, you have different kinds of challenges. Those of you that have teenage kids, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun, right? You have temperaments to take care of. Boys and girls, completely different kind of, you know, not disaster, trial. Ni'ma, ni'ma, I meant ni'ma. And then you have your parents to take care of. Astaghfirullah al-Azim. You have your in-laws to deal with. You have, you have work. You have friends, you have community, you have like lots of different things pulling at you. And on top of that, you have the bills and you have the tire pressure on the car and you have the, did the garbage go out for recycling or did, it go, did you put the wrong thing out outside? Where's the car park? Taxes? Astaghfirullah There's a lot of things going on in your head. And you're not running a country, you're running a household. And you're barely taking care of yourself and you don't even know where the day goes. The day just disappears. Between all of these responsibilities, by the time you hit the bed, you pass out, like you're in a coma, you can't be talked to. Now I want you to put this in perspective a little bit. We're cool? Oh no, I, totally. Oh, they can't hear me? Yeah, I, I, I purposely speak low, so they have to like go like that. <laughs> It makes sure they pay attention more. I realized something. Muslims are so used to hearing loud voices, they don't listen. So I purposely use a low voice. <laughs> so anyway, so the thing is, when we, when we think about what the Prophet's doing, he's not running one household. He has multiple spouses. So he's running multiple households. So whatever responsibilities you're carrying, multiply that by a few. On top of that, he is now the governor of an entire city. So as a governor, he has to deal with economic issues, social issues, political issues. There are different religious communities. There's also the, the, the fragile union between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. They have their cultural differences. They have their, their, their background differences. There are also those that are coming new into Islam. Oh, of course, there's the Makkans who'd like to kill all of us. Who are still waiting for an opportunity to do so then there are tribes inside medina that are trying to sabotage medina from the inside and end this project before it even begins there are even some secret assassination attempts of the prophet that are cooking up in the at, the at the time all kinds of things are going on as the governor he has to watch out for all of this and there are those inside of his own camp among those who claim to believe that are actually trying to destroy him from the inside even though they sit in the first row in the prayer so there's the, there's the gang of hypocrites that disguise themselves as friends, but they're the enemy. So this is pretty heavy stuff that he's got to deal with all at the same time. On top of that, there is, now that you have that, he is the, the wa'id and the imam and the counselor and the advisor for the entire ummah that's alive at the time. So if anybody has an issue with their dad, guess who they go talk to? Anybody has an issue with their wife, who do they come talk to? Anybody's got an issue that, you know, I don't understand this or, you know, tell me what I should do or I just need some inspiration. Give me some motivation. You know, now imagine a CEO of a company 
right? Important job, CEO of a company. He's got his executive office and the security guard from the first floor, this guy's on the 90th floor. He takes the elevator to the 90th floor and says, hey boss, just give me some motivation. I just want to hear something inspiring. Can you tell me? It's kind of, I'm just getting a little bored at my job and I just feel like you should just give me some, tell me things are going to be okay. What's the CEO going to do? You're fired. Get out of here. You know, I, my job is to motivate you. You know, where am I and where are you? Know your place, you know. But what is Rasulullah doing? You, so, you see so many narrations, so many accounts of people just coming up to him and saying, tell me something. Tell me something I can do. Or well, who, who should I treat the best? Who should I treat the best? And these are not things that Allah hasn't already talked about. Allah has already said, It's already revealed in the Quran. You know, and teachers, by the way, though some of you are in the teaching profession, can I see how many people are in the teaching profession? I don't know, wow, we need more teachers in this community, let me tell you right now. But if you're in the teaching profession and you've already taught something over and over again, and then a student comes to you and says, hey, uh, so I was wondering, could you, uh, you know, teach me the alif ba again? Could, you, could we go over that? The ba is a little confusing. The alif I got. The ba is a little confusing. As a teacher, what are you going to do? Go read the book. Go review. You're not, you can't be serious. Sometimes people ask such basic questions that it offends the teacher. Like, where have you been? What coma were you in? Were you, were you among the Ashab al-Kahf? You just woke up? Like, where, where, where were you? But people come to the Prophet in the middle of him dealing with the crisis of being a governor, in the middle of the looming threat of war, that's going to happen over three times in Medina, between Mecca and Medina, in the middle of the economic crisis, in the middle of the, you know, the spiritual crisis of the munafiqun, he's dealing with people that are coming and talking to him on an individual basis, and there's no time limit on it. They can come to him anytime, to the point where Allah had to reveal, don't just show up at his house, and don't just stick around, you need to leave. So the Nur had to come and teach the Sahaba, you're not, he's, he's too nice to tell you, I think it's about time you should leave, it's only 3 a.m. You need to go on your own, you know, don't just sit there. So Allah, he wouldn't say it because he's just constantly serving, serving, and serving. And on top of all of that, he's dealing with multiple wives. Now that sounds like a, an attack on Islam. He had multiple spouses. But let me tell you something. Each spouse had a temperament, has a different personality. And he's trying to be the best husband he can be to all of them. In fact, he makes the claim to us explicitly that he is the best to his family among all of us. So he's being the best husband to all of them. And on top of that, he needs to make sure that he's being fair to all of them, so he's giving equal amounts of time. Now, just, just, if you just take a step back and imagine this whole thing for a moment, is this an easy amount of things to juggle? It seems like the Prophet ﷺ has an impossible amount of pressure and burden on him. When Allah says, Inna sanuki it's, it's, you know, some of us can just, you know, we can go to work, we can come back and turn on the PS5 that we made so much dua to acquire. Right, and then <laughs> it's okay. Then we can, and at the end of it all, we can say, "Man, life's tough. I got work in the morning." There's no time. There's no off switch for this man. And by the way, when the night happens, finally everybody's asleep. What's Allah's commandment to him? More than a third of the night, he has to make qiyam to Allah. More than a third. It's, it's optional for us. It's mandatory for him. It's been revealed to him as mandatory. So his days and nights are done. He's 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 to be exhausted completely. Now, let's put, I, I set the scene for you for a reason. I wanted to talk to you about a few things in Surah Al-Tahrim, right? Surah Al-Tahrim is really interesting. 
there's something in small and short surahs that are a few pages, there's something, the concept, I won't give you the English terminology, I'll give you English terms. So it's easy for you to, to kind of connect with it. They're called anchors, anchors. You know an anchor in a ship, when you drop an anchor? So there's a similar kind of phrase used multiple times in the same surah. And that's kind of like an anchor is dropped here and another anchor is dropped here. And there's a mental connection made between the two. So this is only 12 ayat, yes? In the beginning, Allah says, Ya ayyuhan nabi, Prophet. Allah addresses the surah with, not talking to us, not saying, Ya ayyuhan nabina amanu. He's talking directly to his Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa So we're going to learn something about a conversation that's happening between Allah and the Prophet. Fine. How many ayat did I say? I forgot. Oh, very good. Mashallah. Somebody's listening. Very good. Now in the ninth ayah, Almost done. The surah is almost done. We're in ayah number nine. Ya ayyuhan nabi again. So the ya ayyuhan nabi happens twice. Okay. Now let me tell you. I told you he's dealing with lots of things. One of those things possibly, possibly, one of those things is sometimes one of his wives is upset. She's in a bad mood. Okay. One of his wives is in a bad mood. There's some, let's just call it drama at home. There's some drama at home. That's one issue. Here's another issue. There are people on the outside that are trying to kill all the Muslims, and there are people on the inside pretending to be Muslim that are engaging in spying and espionage, working with the outside men enemy to open the floodgates and create a bloodbath in Medina. Okay? Two issues. What was the first issue that I mentioned? Drama at home. Maybe one of the wives is upset. That's one issue. What's the other issue? Certain death. The death of the entire Ummah. Which one do you think is like an emergency situation? What do you think? Any guess? <laughs> Home problem. We'll talk later. We have, I think we have some conversations to have separately. You would imagine that Allah will give instruction to the Prophet in this surah about dealing with the looming threat of the munafiqeen, the hypocrites, the spies, and the kuffar. And he does. He says, Ya ayyuhan nabi, jahil al-kuffara wal-munafiqeena wa-hmud alayhim. Wa-hum jahannam wa al-masir. You need to stay, you need to struggle against both of those groups. Show no mercy to either group. You need to engage with them directly. So he's giving him a mandate to deal with the enemy inside and outside. But that happens in ayah number nine. In number, the surah is almost over. The surah is almost done. And actually after nine is just a history lesson. It's just a, it's not even about the Prophet's life. It's about Mut and other prophets. But what happened in ayah number one? Where did the surah begin? And what happened until ayah number nine? Most of the surah. Ya ayyuhan nabi. Why do you make, the Prophet is being told, listen to this. Why do you make halal? Or why do you, why do you make haram? What Allah made halal for you. Why are you making something wrong for you, impermissible for you, that Allah said is okay? You're doing so to make some of your spouses happy? And Allah is extremely forgiving, always loving and caring. So the opening subject was this really strange expression. Usually Allah criticized the people that came before us, they took what was haram and they made it halal. You know that, right? They took something that was haram and they made it 
halal. But the Prophet is not being told, why would you take something haram and make it halal? What is the Prophet being told? Why are you taking something halal and making it haram? And then Allah even added a reason. Why would you do such a thing? Why would he do it? To, to, to make your, your wives content. I want to put all of this in perspective for you. As the Prophet ﷺ is engaged in all kinds of heavy burdens, there's only one place he can find peace of mind. Allah says that the purpose of marriage is لِتَسْكُنُوا إِلَيْهَا So you can find calm and peace and harmony in your spouses. That's the goal of marriage according to Allah Himself. That's the purpose. Fine. When the Prophet ﷺ has calm in his personal life, in his married life, that calm gives him the ability, the fuel to deal with much bigger responsibilities outside. The kind of thing that you will watch on the news. The kind of thing that he has to deal with is outside. The big stuff, the, the stuff that historians will record. The historians will not record, oh, he had drama at home one day. The historians will record the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, the Hijrah, the, you know, Fath Makkah. Historians will record major incidents, major, major, you know, attempts, newsworthy stuff, not these small things. What is Allah teaching us in this remarkable surah? That what goes on at home is so fundamentally important because unless you deal with it, you cannot be in a position to deal with what is happening outside. So for eight ayat, Allah is only talking about the Prophet his wives, us, and our families. That's all he's talking about. And then gets to the Prophet and says, by the way, now that that is dealt with, now you can deal with the big stuff. Now you can deal with the big stuff. Sometimes I talk about family issues and people say, why aren't you talking about the crisis of the ummah? I was like, because uh, it's ayah number nine, bro. <laughs> this is a crisis. This is in fact a crisis. Now I'm going to summarize some of the narrations that surround the story. But even if you don't know those narrations, let's pay attention to what Allah is actually saying. Now the only thing I've established so far in this conversation is, okay, Two times the Prophet is addressed directly. The first time Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is being told don't make something haram for himself that Allah has made halal. So we got to dig into that a little bit. And then later on to deal with the hypocrites and the kuffar. Fine. Alright, so let's go to this first thing again. You see, Allah has made lots and lots and lots of things halal. And only filthy things he said stay away from. So the things that are haram are actually very few. And most of what Allah has made on this earth, He opened up the door of halal. Muslims start thinking most things are haram until proven halal. But actually the way Allah made the world, the few things that He stopped us from are a handful of things. Stay away from this filth, this filth, this filth, and this filth. The rest of this world was made good and pure for you. Okay? When you go towards the haram, since the time of Adam he was given one tree that's haram, yes? When you go towards haram, you should feel bad. Because you went towards the one thing Allah told you not to. You should feel guilty. You should feel ashamed. You should feel regret. You should feel, I should feel in my heart, man, I messed up, I better not do that again. I should turn to Allah and say, Ya Allah, that is my failure. I slipped up. 
I don't know how I lost control, but I will not allow myself to do that again. Please forgive me. I turn to you sincerely. That kind of guilt you should feel if you cross Allah's line of haram. But people are weird. Relationships are weird. And the closest relationship the Prophet ﷺ has in Medina is actually his wives. He doesn't have his parents with him. He doesn't have siblings with him. He doesn't have uncles with him, except for at a distance. The closest people to him in his life are who? His wives. For you, it may not be. It might be the farthest person from you is your wife. I hope not, but I'm just saying. But you have other people that are very closely connected to you. When you walk inside your home, who's there? Maybe your kids are there. Maybe your parents are there. Maybe your siblings are there. Maybe your spouse is there. These are the people that are the closest to you, yes? Now those people in our life, sometimes those relationships are supposed to be relationships of love and respect and safety and understanding and forgiveness. These are the things that make any relationship work, whether it's between parents and children, whether it's between siblings, whether it's between spouses. It's the same basic things. If a, if a parent does not feel respected by the child, they're going to be hurt. If a child feels humiliated by the parents all the time, that's not going to work either. We, we, we need these things as human beings. We need to feel safe. We need to feel respected. We need to feel loved. There's some basic things that we need. But unfortunately, we use the word love a lot in relationships. Like even after you get slapped up by your dad, he'll say, I love you. You know I love you, right? Even after like a huge shaming session, right? Your, your, your husband will shame you or the wife will shame you. And say the most hurtful things and then say at the end, you know, no one loves you like I do, right? Because I mean, look at you. Who else could love you? Have you seen your face? It is a miracle of Allah that I even love you. You should be grateful that I'm slapping you. <laughs> Go pray to Rakat. <laughs> Shukr now that I cursed you out. Because if anybody else were there, you wouldn't even be alive. You know? My greatest love for you is that I tolerate you. That's my love for you. So you know what we do? We use the word love. But actually the relationship in reality doesn't look like it has anything to do with love. If you describe what happens in that relationship, there's a lack of respect, there's a lack of trust, there's humiliation, there's sarcasm, there's anger, there's suspicion, there's all these negative things all the time. But we call it what? I love them though. I love them. I love one of those, like, not just between spouses, even between children. I'll have some parent come to me with their child. Mashallah, can I have a minute? Yeah, sure, you can have two minutes. Sure. This is my son. He's not very good. But I love him. I love him, he's, he's, but he's not very good. Can you make him good? <laughs> so, <laughs> I know the mother means well, but you know what she just did? She humiliated her son. She's humiliated. And that's not going to help. He's going to, first of all, thanks a lot, lady. Now he hates me too. <laughs> but, so the first thing I do with a boy like that is, I am so sorry. I, I'm really sorry. I, I, I didn't do this. <laughs> you know? But the point that I'm making is, these relationships that we have at home, they're supposed to be characterized by love. But un unfortunately, they become about something else. And one of the other things they become about is possession and control. You become possessive over someone, you become controlling over someone, and you love them, 
You want to hug them, give them affection, so long as they're doing some things within your boundaries. And the moment they do something you don't like, now you need to make them feel guilty. So you have your own boundary of your halal and your haram. Do you understand what I'm saying? Allah has His boundary of what's haram. But in many relationships, the, 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 the spouse creates a new boundary that has nothing to do with Allah's boundaries. They have their own boundaries. They say, I don't want you talking to your friend. I don't like that. I don't want you talking to your friend. Well, I've been friends since like we were both in diapers. That's my best friend. No, if you love me, you won't talk to him. If you love me, you will never talk to him. And now you're like, uh, and your friend is calling you, texting you, uh, I love my wife. I can't, you know. Or a, spouse, a husband says to the wife, I don't want you talking to your mother. I don't want you talking to your, your family. No, I, I, I forbid it. And then they, they try to Islamify it on top of that too. Allah has given me the authority to know. No, he hasn't, bro. Yeah, you can't cut a family tie. You can't do it. Those are, those are connections Allah made. You could be the husband, you could be the pharaoh, you could be Donald Trump, I don't care who you are. You can't tell anybody to not connect with their parents. You can't do it. That's, that's a relationship you don't own. That, that relationship Allah owns. But the point is the same. A pressure is being exerted over something that isn't wrong. It's not wrong. But because you are so loving, you're like, I don't want to hurt my wife's feelings. Or I don't want to hurt my husband's feelings. So fine, I won't talk to my best friend anymore. Because I love her so much. I won't talk to my friend anymore. Because I love her so much. I'll stop playing basketball. Because I love her so much. I'll start, I'll stop, you know, looking happy. You know, control can come from the wife. Control can come from the husband. Control can come from father or children, mother or children. It can come from siblings. It can come from anywhere. And this control is sometimes not control like I command you and you better obey. It's sometimes like in the face. It's like a non-spoken kind of control. Where are you going? Oh, my friend came from out of town. I just was going to pick him up from the airport. Go, go ahead. Have fun. I hope you enjoy yourself. No, no, you know what? When are you coming back? No, you know what? Don't even tell me. It's okay. Just, why do you even have to come home? Okay, just go. Just go. No, no, go. Why aren't you going? Go already. You don't care about me. And now, when, and some of you are not very smart. So when your wife says, go, go, no, no, go, go, go. You're like, mashallah, she's encouraging me. I should go. <laughs> you're like, jazakallah And you're like, bro, when she's saying go, she's telling you, step out and you will die. That's what she's saying. But you're not translating properly. There's a problem in tarjama. Right? So when these kinds of boundaries are drawn, sometimes you're afraid of making somebody upset. Here's the common denominator. You have to think about your life. I have to think about my life. You're so afraid of making somebody upset that you start making things haram for yourself that Allah never made haram for you. You start confining yourself and you start putting pressure on yourself in all kinds of things that have nothing to, you shouldn't be feeling bad about it because the only one that has the right to make you feel guilty is Allah when you violate His lines. And His limits are not just about what you owe Him. His limits define how we are good to others also. So, so long as you're obeying Allah, it is impossible that you are doing injustice to anyone else. 
But people that you quote, or people that quote unquote love you sometimes can actually make you feel like even though you're actually doing nothing wrong, there's no one worse than you. No one's a bigger lalim than you. They can make you feel guilty and ashamed for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And the more loving and kind and caring you are, the more you will fall into this trap. The more kind you are, the more you will get stepped on. Right? Because if you're kind and you're like, I, just, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Hey, wh where do you, you want to go eat? Sometimes it's a test question. Hey, where do you want to go eat? Let's go to, you know, Halal Joe's. I don't know. No, I don't want to go there. So you tell me where you want to. I don't want to go anywhere. It's okay. I don't want to go anywhere. You don't want to go anywhere? Yeah, because you never want to take me anywhere. I just said where you want to go. No, it's okay. It's fine. Guilting. For nothing. Creating, creating these kinds of negative sentiment. And you're just constantly worried about what? Making the other happy. Making the other happy. Sh shoveling and filling in that hole that can't be filled. Right? It could, be, it could come from your mom. It could come from your dad. It could come from your wife or your husband. It could come from anywhere. The Prophet is in a situation where even a little bit of that is too dangerous. Even a little bit of that. Because the first thing, listen to this part carefully, the first thing that happens, and that will never happen for Rasulullah but it will happen for us. The first thing that happens is, you take halal things and you make them haram for yourself. Right? Once you do that, you have handed over some control. Little bit. 5%. In a couple of years, it won't be 5%. It'll be 50%. In a couple of years from then, it'll be 100%. You are no longer Allah's slave. Emotionally, you're somebody else's slave. Even though you're doing sajda towards the Kaaba. Emotionally, you're somebody else. You're even feeling guilty coming into the masjid because somebody might make you feel guilty. In your heart, you're not feeling content that you're walking out. And even doing something that pleases Allah, you can't do it. Because you've created a kind of emotional you know, dependence on somebody else. And they're exerting that influence on you. And what's the final stage of that? The final stage of that is those loved ones can even convince you to do haram. The first stage is you take halal things and you make them haram. But if that goes on long enough, then eventually they have so much control that even haram things start becoming what? Halal just to make them happy. Just to make them happy. It's a, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. So we have to have loving, caring, and open conversations in our homes about where the line is drawn. What is not wrong should not be considered wrong by anyone. What Allah has made halal means Allah, Allah considers it good. You don't get to say it's bad. I don't get to say it's bad. So let's take a pause here from the surah for a moment and let's talk about a reality that many of us experience in the ummah and the world. We are juggling two different things. We're juggling our religion, we have our religion, and then we have the society and the culture that we come from, and all of us are hybrid. We're partly American, partly Indian, partly Bangladeshi, partly Moroccan, partly Algerian, partly American, partly all of, all of these things, right? And with social media, now it's all, we don't even know what parts we are. We're all, it's all confused, it's all mixed together. But in many of our cultures, there are practices that have nothing to do with our religion. In fact, some of them even go against our religion. They go against our religion. And we celebrate them in our cultures. And if somebody says, I don't want to do that, for example, I'll give you an example of the South Asian subcontinent. In the South Asian subcontinent, when even Muslims get married, it is not the boy's family that gives gifts. It is the girl's family that is supposed to give, sounds like mahr, but it's opposite of sharia. It's reverse sharia. And they can turn the girl's 
you know, the, the proposal down because that we, we needed a Samsung fridge, not an LG fridge. They could do that, right? Because the pressure is on the girl's family to give, give and give, right? And, and it's flipped. And then what, what else happens in many cultures when it comes, one of the fundamental conditions of a marriage being valid is mahar, right? The mahar should be agreed on. They don't agree on a mahar. They don't even do it. And the day of the marriage, the poor guy just graduated from college. He just got his first job as an accountant, you know, after being in debt from four years of school, which is bad accounting, by the way. And then, then he gets becomes, and then he's getting married. And then they say, oh, no, don't worry about the math. Don't worry about the math. And the moment the nigah contract is being signed, the girl's family says, yeah, it's 200,000. And the kid's like, and then they say, no, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. It's just a number. It's just a number. Nobody has it. Paying the mahal, happily, quickly, and freely, should you give the money that's owed, and they sign off on it, and it's no big deal. There are generations of Muslims that have never, their grandparents now, they never gave the mahal. Their grandparents now. And you ask the grandma, did the grandpa ever give mahal? No, no, they said they would. But you know, they're under a lot of pressure. And I'm just saying, what sharia is this? What, what, is this? They take things that Allah has made mandatory and turn them into optional or not important. And then they take things that have nothing to do with our religion and they make them absolutely fard and wajib and all of it. It's a new, it's a different kind of sharia. Nobody calls it sharia. Nobody calls it an alternative law, but it's more powerful and exerts more pressure than the law of Allah. That's the reality in which many Muslims live. So when the Prophet is told, You are trying to, it was a small issue. It was just a small issue. He just, the, according to the narration, he would go stop at everybody's home and he started spending a couple extra minutes at one spouse's home where she gave him a kind of honey that tasted extra good and he liked it a little much. So it was a couple extra minutes at his house. The next spouse realized she's getting a couple less minutes or she, this one's getting a couple more minutes. So she decided, she couldn't say it directly, so she just said, your breath smells a little, um, you know. And the Prophet felt so bad, that because the only thing that could have had that smell is the honey. Okay, I won't eat that honey anymore. He didn't say from today on, this honey is haram. I mean, he didn't declare those words. He was considering her feelings because she doesn't like that smell. So she, he decided, but that wasn't really what was going on. And so Allah said, when you do that, if the Prophet did that, it would become a sunnah. And if it, become, if it became a sunnah, then we would all want to be like the Prophet said, and we would all do that. In other words, when somebody says they don't like something, even though it's actually okay, we would have to bend and be like the Prophet and change our own preferences, even though Allah did not make it haram. That would be a huge problem. So Allah opened this door and made sure that we don't get to close it. I would argue here that the pleasing of the spouses is not limited to wives. It could be husbands, parents, children. In his life, the closest people are the spouses. Which is why, and what's the evidence that this doesn't just apply to spouses? Because this was about the Prophet himself, In the very next ayah, what Allah does is he takes the khas, and then he does the specific, and he transitions over to now, as for the rest of you, meaning the Muslims. What does he say? And Allah has mandated all of you now. Because the first ayah was talking to the Prophet. The second ayah is talking to all of you. He says, Allah has mandated on all of you to undo 
any of the oaths that you have taken, any oath that you took that something halal you won't do anymore, anything that was okay and you just said, no, no, just to make you happy, I'll never talk to my best friend again, or I'll never do this again, or I'll never do that again. You undo it. It's as of the ayah, it is this, that those kinds of promises are canceled, null and void. Nobody gets to exert permanent oaths on you like that and restrictions on you like that, except Allah. That's Allah's place, nobody else's place, no matter how much you love them. Unless you're doing something wrong. And if you're doing something wrong, Allah forbade it anyway. Allah Sharia is covering it up. It's expansive enough to cover all wrongs. So, قَدْ فَرَضَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ تَحِلَّةَ أَيْمَانِكُمْ وَاللَّهُ مَوْلَاكُمْ وَهُوَ الْعَلِيمُ الْحَكِيمُ Just a couple other things and I'll wrap it up inshallah. Really interesting. In this surah, this was the first issue, boundaries. Boundaries. No one gets to make me feel guilty except Allah. And the only time someone else can make me feel guilty is if actually did something wrong to somebody. Because Allah wouldn't want me to. Otherwise, you don't get to make me guilty and I don't get to make you guilty. That's the first thing. You owe that only and only to Allah. And Allah is very possessive of that. The second issue that Allah mentions is that the Prophet shared something private with some of his spouses. Because husband and wife talk about things that nobody else talks about. They open up about things and they share opinions. And there's un they're unfiltered among each other the way they are not with anyone else. So when he shares some of these, some of these private conversations with some of his spouses, you see, the Prophet ﷺ is a very important, he's the most important person in Medina. And let me tell you something about that, that role that you might not have thought about. He's not just a husband, is he? He's the biggest VIP in Medina. So when you know something the Prophet told you that nobody else knows, you have special access, don't you? You have special access. I'm a nobody in reality. I'm a nobody. But if somebody thinks I'm a big deal and I sit with them and I talk to them and I tell them something personal or I tell them something that I didn't tell anybody else and they start thinking, yo, you know who I talk to? You know that guy? You seen his videos? That guy. You know what he told me? Man. He told me that. Like it becomes like a thing for you that you're connected because you know in psychology we learn when you have access to a, a, someone important that makes you feel important. That's why people like taking selfies and then posting them after taking a picture with the president or taking a picture with the basketball player or taking because then, then it makes you feel like, yeah, see, see my connections? Yeah, we go way back. We go way back. My, my mother used to work at a, at a boutique. She, she started her own store in Dallas, and she, 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 had, she wanted nothing to do with my name. So she's running this store, she sells these clothes and stuff, and this lady comes in, and she starts telling her, uh, do you know Numan Ali Khan? And my mom just smiled. She didn't say yes. She, just, hmm. and she says, yeah, we know him from when he was a child. We, we raised him, and we, she's giving my entire childhood story. I don't know this lady. I moved to Dallas 13 years ago. I was well into my adulthood. <laughs> and she's giving my mom an entire story about it. And then she showed a picture I took at a, with her family at some event <laughs> that, on which she built an entire narrative. The problem that, that occurs is that when you are connected to somebody important, what happens nowadays in politics? There's a leak from within the White House. There's a leak from within the governor's mansion, right? Somebody in the family decided to gain importance for themselves and leak private information. Right? 
Now, I don't accuse the mother of the believers, any mother of the believers of doing this, but you have to understand, when the Prophet shares something with you, it's highly confidential. And by his example, what happens when your husband shares something with you, when your wife shares something with you? That's not for your bros to discuss. That's not for your friends to discuss. That's not, to, that's not a conversation between you and your mother now. That's not a conversation between you and your sister now. Because that was confidential. It was between you and him. Unless it has to do with some serious wrongdoing or something, then you get responsible people involved. A lot of times when I share these things, people just want to go to the exception. Right? Now, what if it's an extreme situation? Yes, we all have common sense. We're not talking about the extreme situation. We're talking about the rule. The rule is what is shared between family stays inside the family. But she, one of the, some of the spouses, or one of them, she said it to somebody else. Now other people know. The Prophet doesn't know that his secret or his private conversation is no longer private. In some case, in some sense, it was broadcast. But Allah revealed it to him. By Allah, from the unseen, Allah told him, by the way, the private conversation you had is no longer private. It leaked from one of your spouses. But Allah did not give him all of the details. So the Prophet comes to his wife and then kind of lets her know, by the way, you... Um, didn't keep that a secret. You spoke to someone, didn't you? So when he called her out because she was supposed to keep that to herself. Now, if somebody calls you out when you weren't supposed to tell anybody, what's your first reaction? Well, your first reaction should be, I'm sorry. You're right. I messed up. But you know, people are defensive by nature. It's hard to accept when you're wrong. The, the best defense in sports, what do they say? Some of you guys were playing basketball outside. The best defense is what? Offense. So if you're going to be put on the defensive, hey, you uh, shared something that uh, you weren't supposed to. The best defense is? Offense. So that's human nature. So what does she do? She says, Man Who told you? Oh, whoever told you, I'm so mad at them. They can't be trusted. The irony of that statement. <laughs> you know? Who? Who ratted me out? Who didn't keep my secret that you told me to keep and I didn't keep, but I told them to keep and they didn't keep it? And then he says, The one who knows everything, the one who has all the news, he's the one who told me. Oh, oh that came from Allah. <laughs> We're never going to have that one. You're not going to come to your wife and say, by the way, I know what you did. And she's like, who told you? No, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you can't. <laughs> That's not for you. <laughs> but the what's what are we learning from this ayah? What is what, what is Allah mentioning this? Right? This is really a private drama situation, right? If you would call it that. There's a conversation. We don't even know what the conversation is. Allah didn't tell us actually what the conversation is. He chose not to tell us. Why? Because anything can fit here. Something serious, something small. But it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. So it's the opposite. It's the, the, the wisdom of Allah. It's the opposite of what happened in the last ayat. In the last ayat, why do you take something halal and make it haram? And now there are some things that are haram. Like what? Like breaking the trust between spouses. And why do you take that which is haram and then you make it what? It's beautiful. This is such a balanced deen, such a balanced Quran. So now it's come out. Allah is the one who informed me. You need to admit your guilt. 
Allah then speaks directly. It's so beautiful. This surah has three audiences. And I'm going to take five more minutes and wrap this up because there's lots to talk about. But I'm going to wrap it up real quick. Three things you should remember about this surah. And it's just 12 ayat. Recite it with contemplation, inshallah. You'll get a lot out of it. The first audience is the Prophet himself. You saw that, right? The second audience is the wives of the Prophet. They're also listening while this is coming down. That's also pretty obvious. And he's going to talk to them directly now. In He's going to start talking to two of the wives of the Prophet. Fine. And later on, he's going to start talking to all of them. Not just two of them, all of them. Okay. So the first audience is the Prophet. The second audience is the wives of the Prophet. So, so far, it's just the Prophet and his family. But there's a third audience. Guess who that is? The third audience is us, the Ummah. We were given a private webcam inside of the Prophet's life and Allah commenting on the situation. Why would Allah expose a private matter in the Prophet's life? The only time, as a rule you should know this, the only time we learn something about the Prophet's private life is because that situation in some way, shape or form will take place in your life. That is why, because everyone's entitled to privacy. Even the mothers of the believers are entitled to privacy. And it would be pretty embarrassing for them to know that these ayat are being recited by all of Medina. You understand that, right? Whoever these two are, about them, everybody's reciting the ayat and they're standing in prayer, you know, and, you know, qalat man and she's standing in the prayer behind. Ooh, that was about me. <laughs> awkward. Allah You know, like, that's not an easy thing. They've been called out forever. Why? Why did Allah put that kind of pressure on our mothers? Those are our mothers, by the way. Right? Allah declared that those, the women we're talking about right now is my mother and your mother. We have the utmost respect for them. We would sacrifice ourselves for them. Why would Allah put them in that position? Because Allah only exposed the private parts of the Prophet life, Prophet's life, especially in the Quran. He did so because he wants you to understand something about your private life. And if you don't understand it, the bigger things that are expected from you as an ummah, the big things you're supposed to handle as an ummah, you will never even get there. Because you didn't handle the stuff in front of you. You didn't create the right boundaries inside the house. It's profound wisdom. And it's a sacrifice those women made. It's a sacrifice that was even made of the Prophet that some of these matters were given out. He would never. Do you imagine the, the Prophet going to the mimbar and saying, by the way, I told one of my wives a secret and she told somebody else? Would you imagine that would ever happen? No. No. This is the messenger about who tells us what. Man satara akhahu, satarahu Allah yawm Whoever covers a believer, Allah will cover them on judgment day. You don't think he would cover his spouses? In fact, Allah declared in the Quran, hunna libasun lakum wa You are their clothing, they're covering, they are your covering. I hide your flaws, you hide my flaws. That is the one of the fundamental goals of marriage, purposes of marriage. And yet Allah exposed this private situation. Why? Because we had to know. I, I, I emphasize that because we should appreciate that when our mothers had to go through these ayat and experience that embarrassment, that is a very heavy price that they paid. So these ayat are not cheap, they're very expensive. Though they paid in their personal life to receive this, so we can have this guidance. So we can learn from it. And so when we overlook these ayat, it's like we don't value what they went through. We have no appreciation of what they had to go through. May Allah give us that appreciation. 
May Allah make, make us really empathize and realize what it is that Allah is telling us in this book, right? So now finally, I, 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 I'm going to end this with like two minutes, and I mean two minutes. It's not like a Pakistani two minutes. It's two minutes. <laughs> it's like Allah says to those two, the, the women that had, that the wives, the mother, our mothers that had shared the secret. He says, In tatuba ilallahi It's heavy words, man. If you both repent to God, then your hearts are inclined towards doing it anyway. So Allah is now describing the internal struggle of somebody who gets called out. I'll say that again, it's a long hashtag. The internal struggle of someone who what? Gets called out. Inside me and you, there's, a, there's different people. There's a, more, there's, a person, there's a version of you inside who's pretty good friends with Shaitan. And there's another part of you that hates Shaitan, that has a good conscience. And there's an internal struggle inside you. The heart of the, our mothers was more inclined towards, you know what, he's right, I did something wrong, I need to repent. But instead of saying, you should apologize to the Prophet, because you violated the Prophet's privacy, his secret, what did Allah say? Allah said, you better repent to who? To Allah. You know what that teaches us? That when you and I respect the, and honor the privacy of the marriage, we're actually obeying Allah. And when we violate that, we're not, we're not offending our spouse. We're actually offending Allah Himself. And tawbah needs to be made to Allah. In tatuba ilallahi faqad sagat khulubukuma. Wa in tawahara alayhi now that's the other inclination. What's the other inclination? You can gang up against him. Oh yeah, well if I gave this, uh, if, I, if I told the secret, what about all these other times? What about all the pressure that I have to go through? What about all the things I have to put up with? There's, uh, you know, four days we didn't even eat food. We didn't do this. Like you could, you have an arsenal. You can say, what about this and what about that? Deflection. The best defense is offense. You can do this in conversation. If somebody calls you out, you did something wrong, you can just say, you're right, I was wrong. Or you could say, oh yeah, I was wrong. It wasn't wrong. You deserved it. You deserved even more. Actually, what I did was a good thing. And, and let me tell you, you're going to tell me what's wrong? Let me make you a list of all the things that are wrong with you. So if some of you, some of you, like I don't know why some of you are crying. This is not a spiritual khutbah. There's something else going on. Some of you dare to tell your wife, hey, that was wrong. And the nuclear explosion that follows, the radiation still heats you up right now. When I, I talk about it, like you, you relapse. <laughs> like, uh, the khutbah I had to hear after that still rings in my head. So the next time, and what's the purpose of doing that? I keep telling you the best defense is offense. She might be getting this offensive because she's making sure you never call her out on anything again. And then you can do that to her. She says, hey, that was wrong what you did. The way you talked to my dad, that wasn't okay. The way you talked to my mom, that was a bit disrespectful. The way you did this, it wasn't. And then you're like, oh yeah? Let me, let me get ready, hold on, let me stretch. <laughs> and then you lay it on her thick. And what is the point of that? You better not be able to say anything ever again. This is actually a psychological tactic that people use in abusive relationships. It's studied in psychology. That you get gaslit when you are corrected. You get gaslit by the other when you're corrected. And Allah says, that inclination, you should make tawbah against it. They study it in men the mental health sciences today. Allah exposed it in Surah Al-Tahreem a millennium and a half ago. In tatuba ilallahi faqad sagat When tawahara alayhi, if you want to get aggressive, if you want to get confrontational against him, 
then Allah is his protector. And Jibreel and all the righteous believers are going to back him up. Meaning, you're not waging war with him. You're not winning some domestic argument. This is a war against God and his messenger. All of them come. That's not you. You can't use this ayah, bro. You can't say, by the way, if you talk back, فَإِنَّ that ain't for you. That's for Allah's Messenger. And I want to tell you finally why. And I said two minutes, I lied. This is the two minutes. Okay. So, this is the two minutes. Let me tell you why. The Prophet has the heaviest burden ever that had to be carried, yes? Nobody will have a heavier burden than the Prophet of Allah. I know the mic is being corrected. It's really interesting. I'm going to wait for that to finish. That's, that's my years of experience. Whenever somebody's fixing something while somebody's talking, everybody's staring at the mic like it became the most interesting thing that ever happened. Like some of you are like, wow, it goes up and down. That's so cool. I want one of those. You know? Anyway, what was I saying? Something about Islam? Last two minutes. That's what I said. Yeah. Right. I lied. Yeah. Next khutbah. Truth is very important. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Uh, the Prophet ﷺ had the heaviest burden ever carried. Allah has given him a responsibility heavier than no human, no Prophet was even given a bigger responsibility, the Qur'an. And his mind and heart need to be calm and clear to be able to receive the Qur'an and deliver it along with all of the other responsibilities I outlined in the beginning. And if even our mothers give him a little bit of drama and a little bit of stress, it can compromise the efficiency of what he has to do outside. It can drain his energy, can't it? Spousal arguments, do they drain the energy? You, nobody has an argument with their spouse and says, wow, that cleared my sinuses. You know, nobody does that. It's, it's exhaust. You can get physically, mentally exhausted. There are people I know when they get in an argument, they fall asleep. They're just done. Allah will not allow that to happen with his prophet. So he says, if you keep this up, I will make him divorce all of you. Explicit, because the word of Allah is more important than any of this. So he, he laid that down for the Messenger of Allah. Those were the best wives ever. That's the best husband ever. But that doesn't get in the way of the responsibility Allah put on him. Now we don't have that responsibility, alhamdulillah. So we don't get to use that as a weapon. We don't get to quote this ayah. We don't get to, because we're not in his place. This is very mukhtas nabi Yeah, you had nabi, that's how it began. But what do we learn from this? What we learn from this is, there will be issues in home when you're not living a life of purpose. And it is the higher purpose that is more important than all of the daily drama. You have every one of us, every, every one of our families, Every one of you has a purpose, something more than just your own bills, something more than just raising your own kids. There's some contribution you need to be making to the ummah, to the deen of Allah, to humanity, something more that's greater than yourself. And when you are both committed, husband and wife are committed to that purpose, then your, your personal dramas will become smaller because you're occupied with something more important. And you will not allow these things to exhaust your energy because something worth much more is worthy of your energy. How many people here, you guys are living in a very expensive part of Florida. I know, I check real estate listings. Okay, 
this is it's not easy to live here. You have to save up a lot, you have to bootstrap, you have to make a difficult move. You have it's it's not an easy thing to build a home for yourself, to start a life with a family, to afford it, to provide an education for your kids. Those are investments you made into your family. But you know what? As a believer, I also know that just like you had long-term investment plans for this life, that I need to also have long-term investment plans for the next life with my family. They're going to leave this home, and we need, we need to be building that next home too. Just like you guys check real estate listings and, oh, I like this bedroom, this living room, I like this neighborhood. Oh, this one has an HOA, this one even has a gate, this one has this, this one has that. You're looking at all that stuff. You know what? The same way we have a home to build in the Akhirah. It's no, it's no shock that at the end of the surah, Asiyah says, Build me a home in heaven. It's no surprise, this is the same surah that says, Save yourselves and your families from fire, meaning build a home in heaven. Get, get yourselves and your families away from hell. How will you do that? When you as a family live a life of purpose. When you do that, then the daily petty things, those meaningless things, those in Urdu, in Urdu we say nichi like lower things, lowly things, they will not preoccupy your mind. You will not care. They didn't give me chai and they didn't give me this and they didn't invite and this one made a comment. They looked at my shoes funny and they, you know, that one was wearing not matching socks. I'm, I'm, I'm insulted and whatever. You can come up with all kinds of drama, but that drama will disappear because you're living a life of purpose. And Allah Azza wa Jal make all of you live a life of purpose. And make your family, the harmony in your family, the relationship between spouses, the most beautiful thing. So when your children grow up, they see mother and father loving each other and respecting each other. And they say, that's what I want when I grow up. They don't see mother and father fighting each other, insulting each other, cursing each other's family. And that's all they learn. And they, they follow your sunnah later on in life. You know, this is what it means. So the Prophet has given us, Allah has given us this beautiful guideline. Let's contemplate it. Let's with an open heart, discuss it with our family. Let's try to end conflicts in the family. Let's try to create more harmony in the family, have real conversations with the family. And I pray Allah Azza brings peace, harmony, and joy in all of your lives. Barakallahu li wa lakum fi al-Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ani wa iyaakum al I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not translating. That's even more awkward. <laughs> There's something about me in Texas, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> and his amazing recitation, mashallah. Um, so I was asked to entertain you with a couple of questions and answers. So those of you that dare, you can ask. I, I will give you a, a fair warning. Uh, I don't often share this publicly, but there is a, I don't know if other speakers have this. I, I, I know that I do. Uh, typically, when I give a lecture, I like to have question answers off the mic. So what that does is it lets you guys kind of be more relaxed. You don't feel like everybody's staring at you. And you don't have nightmares about this is going to replay at your walima. Like, you know, so yeah, it's just more easy. It's easier. Uh, but also, there's a, there's a point in the evening where I have a switch inside me. It turns off. And after that switch is turned off, if you ask me any questions, you will probably get the worst answers imaginable. Like once that switch is turned off and somebody comes to me and says, hey brother, how do I become a better person? 
I say, looking at you, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> but that's only after the switch. The switch is not yet off. So, but anyway, if you guys have any questions, sure. If I'm able to answer, I will. Yes. In Islam, from my understanding, there's three different types of dreams people can have. There's dreams from God. There's dreams um, based off our imagination or life experiences, and there's dreams from Shaitan. Right. Are there any examples um, from the Quran or the Hadith that show intersectionality between the three, which it might become confusing to decipher between the three? Okay, so there's a, the question. Yeah, I'll repeat the question. So the question is, uh, from from your understanding, there are three kinds of dreams in Islam: dreams from yourself, uh, dreams meaning from your own imagination, your thoughts, your anxieties, um, dreams from the devil, from Shaitan, and dreams that come from Allah. True dreams. And is there, does the Quran describe any kind of cross section between them and the, inter, the interplay between them? How are you make, supposed to make sense of dreams? Uh, I, I've been a student of the Quran, I'd like to think fairly seriously for about 22 years. And from what I can understand, the dreams that Allah decided to put a lot of stock into were dreams of the prophets that were given as revelation. And so there are three of them mentioned in the Quran that are related to each other. Outside of that, the Quran didn't really emphasize this. The Sunnah has mention of it. There are narrations about it. But my personal uh, position on this, and you don't, absolutely don't have to agree, we uh, uh, Muslims in general, in many of our cultures, we take things that are not explicit or you know, very clearly laid out in our, in our religion, and we turn them into an entire science. And on top of that, unfortunately, we also turn them into an industry. <laughs> so it becomes a dream interpretation industry for a mere donation of $5 towards my you know, Facebook ad campaign or something, I don't know. But I don't personally put a lot of stock in that. If you are seeing dreams, you can, your heart will let you know if there was something good in it or bad. I personally know in my own life experience I can't speak for anybody else. By the way, two questions that I get asked the most, what do I name this baby? And what does my dream mean? Those are the two most common questions I get. Um, and I, my, I mixed the answers together. I said, you'll see the answer in a dream for what to name your baby. Let's, let's just combine them. But, anyway. but the, 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 what I would like to say is that I know in my personal life, some of the biggest changes I ever made in my life uh, were the, the results of the dream. Uh, and some of the most heavy emotional and even Quran-related experiences I had were actually in a dream. But it's not because I have some expertise in the subject or because I went and asked a scholar. I just knew this means something. This is significant. And I do believe that Allah, when he wants to give any kind of ilham to his servant, that you won't need an expert to tell you. You'll know. You'll just have a feeling and you'll know. And if you are close and sincere in your worship to Allah, then um, you're not going to get some outside thing coming and telling you. Now, it is also true that we deny, we don't openly deny, but practically deny the role of mental health and of psychology um, and our diet and our sleeping habits. All of that affects your dreams. All of that affects your sleeping state, right? So uh, we have to you know, bring our lives back into balance. Our religion is actually about balance. So watching out for things like overeating and oversleeping or undersleeping or excessiveness in anything like excessive screen time and things like that. All of those things we have to cut back from and inshallah you won't see nightmares anymore. Yeah. Yes. 
couple more questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Yes, sir, ma'am. My question is, uh, the Quran understands is complete, everything in it. Yeah. And Allah is the only one that can make something out of it. Yeah. So there are some things in the hadith, like this, that says golden Superman is haram, but there's no verse in the Quran to back that up. So what do you tell somebody that wants to wear gold or silk, but there's no mention in the Quran that says haram? Okay, I'll repeat your question. So this question is that Allah declares certain things haram in the Quran. And the ahadith mentions some other things that are haram that are not mentioned in the Quran, like wearing gold and silver for men, for example. Uh, and what do I say to somebody who's doing that? Now I'll tell you what I personally say to somebody who's doing that, and your answer does not have to be my answer. I don't believe that someone who is on their way to learning their religion needs to be given the guidelines the way that we expect a practicing Muslim to have the guidelines. I do not believe this to be the case. I believe that Islam is a transformative religion. In other words, people are allowed to grow intellectually, spiritually, morally, psychologically, to the point where they mature enough and they can practice more and more of their deen as they come to an understanding. I don't tell somebody to um, make those drastic changes right away. So for example, if somebody was considering Islam and they had a drinking problem, hypothetically speaking, clearly drinking is forbidden in our religion, but that will not be my first conversation with them. It is the beliefs in this religion, the teachings of this religion, the connection to Allah in this religion would be the first conversation. I argue this based on the following. Even though Islam itself is complete and haram will always be haram and not know what to make it haram. But my argument is as follows. The, the Sahaba were the best of all generations. And they made more sacrifices for this religion than anybody will ever make after them. And Allah did not expect them to give up alcohol throughout Medina. Throughout Mecca, sorry. Throughout Mecca. And he did not give them, expect them to give up alcohol while they were making hijrah, one of the greatest acts of worship for Allah. And while most of Medina, Medina life was going on, Allah did not explicitly prohibit alcohol. He did it in stages. The point that I extrapolate for that, from that is that if the best people that ever lived, the most spiritually connected, willing to sacrifice people that ever lived, that were companions of the Prophet were given time to wean off this addiction, were given time to deal with something culturally. Women were not told to wear the hijab in Mecca. They were not. They, they made hijrah and the head covering was not part of our religion. The prayers had been revealed and the head covering still hadn't been revealed. That came in Surah Al-Nur and Surah Al-Ahzab. That's way later on. That's like 16, 17, maybe even 18 years into the revelation, a revelation that is 23 years. So what are these women doing? Like, if you saw women in Mecca, the, the best women of Islam, if you saw them in Mecca, you'd be confused, like, how liberal are they? Because the marker of if somebody's following Islam now is the law of Islam. But the law of Islam is followed after a transformation happens. My personal interest is in transformation, because the Qur'an's interest is in transformation. So with someone like that who's rocking gold, I would never have a conversation about gold with them. You know what conversations I would have with them? About making money the legitimate way about taking care of family, about those kinds of things. And then when they grow enough, then there's time to have those kinds of conversations. I also don't like public conversations about halal and haram. And I'll tell you why. Because that used to be a fitna anyway before. Now it's even bigger because we live in the world of social media where a thousand people have a thousand opinions. So it actually such conversations create more confusion and create more uh, like endless debate than actual solutions. 
So my recommendation for anyone who's mature enough in their religion, now they're committed to their prayer, now they want to learn more. At that point, I would say that you need to now spend time sitting with a scholar to come to certain conclusions, to, 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 to reach a certain place. And even if I come to a conclusion myself, I don't share it with you guys. I study a lot of stuff I don't talk to you about. I don't, I think it's irresponsible because I'm studying it for myself. I'm not studying it for you. What I do study for to share is a Quran. That's what I study to share. Other stuff that I study, I study for my own enrichment. And that would be my approach for anybody. Inshallah. But we can talk privately also. Inshallah. Yes, sir. Actually, let's give sisters a chance and I'll come right to you. Any sisters want to? Nobody, right? I thought so. Yes? Okay, go ahead. Do we have a classification for backbiting? Because sisters talk, what are you going to do? That, that's the summary, right? That's, that's, am I getting that correctly? Okay, so is there any definition of backbiting because sisters talk? So here's the thing. Let me tell you some litmus tests. The first litmus test is if you, if you have a friend who says, I don't like to talk to anybody and I usually mind my own business. Like I, I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes to mind their own business. But you know, the moment you say what you know, that's backbiting. That's like the first litmus test, like run in the other direction, okay? Um, but more seriously, you just have to imagine that person there. Easy. If that person about whom you are talking was there, would the conversation go the same way? And would they be offended or not? Right? And if, if you feel they would be offended, that's backbiting. It doesn't even have to do with whether it's true or not. You know, uh, Abdul Karim, he, uh, he, he didn't graduate high school. He had to do another year. I think you're backbiting. No, but it's true. That's what happened. What, I can't speak the haqq? Allah says, what haqq. So I'm speaking the haqq, and I'm saying he, you know, it's, it's no, you're, you're backbiting. You're truthfully backbiting. And now you're trying to sound Islamic about it too, which is worse. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a simple test. It's the same. Actually, empathy is the big, biggest litmus test. Would you want to be spoken about in that way? Would you want to be a topic in that way? Easy. Our, our deen is beautifully easy. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, I agree with you that if someone comes to Islam with a drinking problem, that the first conversation should be about faith and not about drinking. But what I don't agree with is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the uh, uh, drinking alcohol haram gradual, that's Allah's tashriya. Right. When Rasul received the final stage of that tashriya, he then ordered all the Muslims, and the Muslims immediately responded to that by getting rid of the alcohol. That's correct, yes. Where we come in as Muslims, as followers of Muhammad, we don't imitate the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done it gradually. We imitate what the Rasul has done when he had immediately executed Allah's order because Allah can do it any way he wants because that's Allah. He's the creator. He does right. it gradually. If he chose to do that, that's his decree. We as Muslims, we come in and we imitate Rasulullah, not imitate Allah. So, 
But we don't have to just, you know, to have that first conversation with the non Right. Like, we can leave it out for a little bit. Right. But we, you know, we don't make it halal. No, I, I, so let me clarify, because uh, you, your comment was rather long, so I'll summarize it. So the, the point that you're making is that Allah gradually prohibited alcohol, but the final commandment came and the Prophet absolutely implemented the law. So we don't get to take the gradual approach. That's Allah's mandate. That's not our mandate. We have to do what the final decree is. And, right. So am I representing that accurately? Okay, good. So my so let me clarify. First, I don't say that ever in Islam can I get to say that something is halal, that Allah has made haram. That's not going to happen. That's number one. Uh, number two, however, I will say that those who have a drinking problem, um, even though they, that I know that it's haram for them, and actually most of the time they already know that it's haram for them, I will allow them the time to actually seek rehabilitation, gain more strength, change their company. You know, there, there are people that are just surrounded by alcohol like they are, like, like it's their oxygen, you know. So I, I need to give them room to be able to migrate away from that, make a hijrah, and hijrah is step by step, right? So the, the, the sharia hasn't changed, my approach to a person has, and at an individual level. And also, the mandate for a society is different from the mandate for an individual. An individual, the tarkabunna tabqan an tabaq. We have to take that apart. Even though, if they were to ask me, if somebody asked me who's having a hard time giving up alcohol, hey, does Allah want me to give up alcohol? I'll say, yeah, he does. Yeah. If somebody asks me, hey, is Allah expecting me to wear the hijab? You know, I'm not, I don't know that much and I'm scared of it, but is he expecting me? Yeah, I, I understand that you're not strong enough, but is he expecting you? Yeah, he is. That's what he said. You know, I can't change that. But, and that's, that's between you and Allah. That, that would be my, my approach to it. Thank you for asking for that clarification. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, because personal I was wondering, what is the process that you like decided that you wanted to live like a scholarly lifestyle? Like, oh, I see. Oh, this is a process? really cool question. What's your name? Yusuf. Yusuf, you are awesome. How old are you, Yusuf? I'm 12. Yusuf is 12. Yusuf asked me, what process made me decide that I want to live a scholarly lifestyle? That is profound and hilarious. Because I do not live a scholarly lifestyle. I live a PlayStation 4 lifestyle. <laughs> but let me just tell you, I just, I, I, I absolutely became fascinated with the Arabic language. I became absolutely fascinated with the study of the Quran. Um, the way that I got introduced to it was very transformative, actually. I had nothing to do with living a conservative life even. And I just got exposed to the Quran in a way that was just life transforming for me. And I just had to know more about this book. And so this became a labor of love for me, along with a life that I already had. Like I was in college full time. I was working full time. Uh, I was in the tech industry already before I graduated from college. While I was working full time, I was studying Arabic, trying to study the Quran. And then eventually I found my next love, which was the love of teaching. I just really loved it. And I, I tried it a few times that you can love something, but you're no good at it. Like you can love basketball, but you can't make a free throw. Right. And you should not be like having pipe dreams about the NBA. You should not do that. Because you should probably learn to make apps or something. I don't know. Do something with your life. But I loved teaching, but that doesn't mean I'm any good at it. So I tried, tried my hand at it. I tried with a couple of people. And I, they came back to me and said, hey, I teach at a university. And if you were teaching at the university, you'd get the best teacher award. Like I got validation from people that were in the field, right? Then I knew I was onto something and it kind of pushed me more and more in this direction. But it took a, lo a long time. And even now, I'm 
I have my own formula for how I study and how I learn. And for me to learn, I need to be in a state of like a peace of mind. And I do whatever it takes to be in a state of peace of mind. Whether it's exercise, whether it's, if it's video games, it's video games. If it's, if it's being with family and friends and all of that, I will do that and then give 100% attention to the work that I do. But I know I can't study for eight hours a day. That's not me, I'm not wired that way. I can give an hour, two hours. And for me, those two hours of like concentrated work are better than eight hours of you know half-baked effort, right? But that's at least that's just my own weird formula. I know there's a lot of hands, but we'll... oh, people are waiting. Don't whisper that. That's important. People are waiting for me for the food to start. <laughs> <laughs> that was important. I was waiting for people for the food to start. We were both in this awkward. Yeah. Okay, I'll do one last one, and we will go eat. And I'll keep talking to you guys. I'm not going anywhere. Look, I don't know what, what speaker experience y'all have. I don't work that way. I'm going to hang out here until they kick me out of here. Okay, so that's, I'm not going anywhere. So I'll, I'll give the sisters a chance, and then I'll talk to you guys off the mic. Yes. Are there prayers that you can do for your kids to be a Scots and they heard about food? <laughs> uh, are there prayers that you can do for your kids to be a scholar like me? Please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> and second of all, let your kids be. Celebrate what they have. Find their talents, encourage them, fill them with, flood them with confidence, give them a love of the and let that go where it goes. Don't say, I want them to be a scholar. Maybe they're not meant to be a scholar. Maybe they're meant to be an engineer and make them a world-transforming engineer. It's all good. That's a service to Allah's deen too, right? And those of them that want to become a scholar, then encourage that, that, that inspiration. But I wouldn't want anybody to be like, oh, I wish they were like me. Like, I, I don't want that. I, I do want certain qualities in your, the young people here. I want you to be confident. I want you to be driven. I want you to be harder working than anybody else. Anything you do, you put 200% in it. Anything you do. I don't care what it is. If it's your religious studies, you put 200%. If it's basketball, nobody dribbles it better than you do. If it's, if it's uh, school, nobody, nobody hits the books harder than you do. Whatever you do, hit it hard. Go hard at it. You know, we don't, we don't accept mediocrity. This ummah will be a leader in the world when you guys start thinking like leaders. It will not happen if that doesn't happen. So that, that's what I hold for your children. Thank you so much. I'm going to be hanging out with you guys. So I'm going <laughs> Oh, you're there. Wow.